Hello and welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumbiner, and with Kristen Chase, we're the co-founders of CoolMomPicks.com. Kristen's out today, but I am so excited to be joined by an incredible guest. Today I'm going to be talking with Martin Luther King Jr.'s goddaughter, the vocalist, actress, author, and activist, Donzele Abernathy. We're going to talk about what we as parents can do to help honor and teach black history all year round and move civil rights forward. And we're going to learn more about her incredible new choral project, The Listening, which was inspired by Dr. King's 1967 speech, A Time to Break Silence. And as always, we'll close out our show with our cool picks of the week. So first, let me tell you a little more about Donzele. It was hard to cut down the bio because she is remarkable. She has a legacy as the youngest daughter of the American Civil Rights Movement co-founder, Reverend Dr. Ralph David and Juanita Jones Abernathy. And in fact, she was born in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement as her father and his best friend, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., established the nonviolent social movement together. Her own life began with the bombing of her parents' home and her father's First Baptist church in Montgomery, Alabama. So it's no surprise that growing up literally on the front lines of the movement influenced the path her life and career took. She herself participated in all of the major civil rights movements and marches, including the Freedom Riders, the March on Washington, and in the front line of the Selma to Montgomery March. Donzele delivered her own first public speech at the age of 12 at the Children for Survival March in Washington, D.C., and she hasn't stopped since. Her speaking resume is amazing, with venues from Harvard, to the National Association of Women Judges annual conference where she keynoted Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Elihu Harris's lecture series Daughters of the Civil Rights Movement with Lucy Baines Johnson, Carrie Kennedy, and Peggy Wallace Kennedy and the 45th anniversary of the Montgomery Bus Boycott Celebration. She was actually given the honor of introducing Mrs. Rosa Parks in one of her own last public appearances. Donzelay's writing includes the award-winning play Birmingham Sunday and the ALA-nominated book Partners to History, Martin Luther King, Ralph David Abernathy, and the Civil Rights Movement, which you may even own for your kids. Through the Teaching American History program, she's taught teachers how to teach African American and civil rights history, and she has lectured on implicit bias for President Obama's organization, Organizing for Action. On top of all that, she has a stellar acting resume. You may have seen her in Miss Ever's Boys, Gods and Generals, Murder in Mississippi, and if you're a geek like me, you know her as Dr. Stevens in The Walking Dead. And most recently, she's the the lead soloist on The Listening, a phenomenal social justice choral project composed by Cheryl B. Engelhart, featuring both Donzele and Wes Felton, and inspired by Dr. King's 1967 speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence, which he delivered exactly one year before his assassination. It's incredibly moving song and video, and we're going to hear more about that. But let's just jump right in. Welcome, Donzele. Hi, good morning, Liz. How are you? Good morning. I am so happy to have you here. My gosh, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was a little like overwhelmed and intimidated. You have done so much. Oh, my goodness. You know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And it's an honor for me to be here to talk to mothers and to, you know, give my little two cents. But yeah, mothers are my heroes. So please, are you kidding me? This is so great. And thank you tremendously. I'm so excited. Let's just jump right in. Like, first of all, how is your Black History Month going so far? It's been an interesting February. Oh, wow. It, it's been insane. Every single day I have something to do and, you know, things that would ordinarily take me out of the house to do Black History Month presentations or to do interviews and things like that. Every day it's been busy. I'm really exhausted. And that's without leaving your house. Yeah, that's literally without <laughs> Without leaving my house. So by March, I thought that I would be able to, you know, rest by March, but March is Women's History Month. And so I will be busy in March as well. So I'm looking forward to April. Um, yeah. In April, we rest. Uh -huh. a, li a little known adage there. So let me ask you just briefly, because I know this could be mm -hmm. an entire podcast series on its own, but briefly, like, what was life like growing up for you? You know, it was quite incredible as an adult, as I look back at my childhood, you know, being born to uh, my parents and to Uncle Martin and Uncle Retta at that pivotal point in American history. And, and during my lifetime to literally watch the world change, I was born into segregation. We couldn't go to restaurants or drink out of water fountains or go to 
restrooms, try on clothing at department stores, all of the basic things that you take for granted going into regular white grocery stores that just wasn't acceptable, staying in hotels or swimming in public swimming pools or going to fairs or to something like Six Flags, those options were not available to people of color. And and when I say that, I mean all people of color. Anyone who was non-white, we didn't get the opportunity to enjoy those things. Uh, People assumed that we were here to serve based on man's ideology that one race was superior to another. And uh, yeah, America was crippled. But I got a chance to watch Americans take to the streets for social justice and because it was morally and ethically right and change the course of American history in my lifetime. And then to be a small child at the forefront, to listen to my dad and Uncle Martin and all the people that would come in and out of our home as they discussed these policies and things that they wanted to make happen and to literally watch it become manifested. And, and then, I, you know, I learned the power of what a small group of concerned citizens could achieve if you're doing something that's morally right for the greater good of humanity. And so, yes, now when I look at the world today, I'm stunned, you know, because I look back from where I began to where we are now. And I'm, I'm happy. I'm proud, uh, even though we are still in a terrible situation, mm-hmm. especially here in the United States of America. It's still you know, a terrible situation because now the pendulum has swung and we're moving backwards. But we have hope now that we have uh, a new president. But, you know, as a child witnessing all of these things, it was uh, tremendous. And then being called upon to do my part, which was, uh, you know, to integrate the elementary school in Georgia, which ultimately was the integration of uh, Dixie, is what they called it, meaning all the schools in the South. And it was tough. There was one little boy that called me the N-word every day, and I was eight years of age. I was in the third grade, and there was another boy who used to threaten to push my sister down the steps and call her Bosco Bear. At the age of eight, I knew that I had to stand up to that boy to defend my sister, who was of a more gentle demeanor. And I thought, well, I'm a fighter. I will fight you. And then I learned how important nonviolence was so that when the girls came to surround me on the playground and wanted to fight me, one of the congressman's daughter was leading the charge. I exercised nonviolence and said to her, well, if you're going to hit me, I'm going to turn the other cheek. I will not lower myself to fight you. I'm not barbaric. You know, at that point, I was uh, using the terminology of Uncle Martin and my dad and letting it, you know, move through me and guide me. And, of course, I deflated the girl. And um, I was the the victor because I was not going to fight back. And I learned the power of nonviolence, you know, firsthand. And, you know, I've been put in dangerous situations in my lifetime. The horrible thing was the fear of every night going to bed. Because at dinner time, members of the white supremacist group, the Ku Klux Klan, would call every single evening at dinner time. Not some nights, but every single night. Once we moved to Atlanta and threatened to kill us, and my mother would slam the telephone down at the wall. And we didn't always know when their call was going to come. We knew that it would come during dinner, but you didn't know which call it would be because it could be a member calling saying that someone was sick or someone had passed or it was someone with the civil rights movement or it was my dad calling from the road. So my mother didn't know. But I would know when it was that call because she'd slam the phone down. We'd eat the remainder of our dinner in silence and quickly go to our rooms finish whatever homework we needed to do. No one had to tell us to do anything. We'd take our baths as quickly as we could and then get in the bed and pray and then roll up into a little ball and pray that they didn't bomb the house that night and that we'd wake up in the morning. And we'd make it through the morning, and then it was like, oh, you know, we're okay. It's morning. It'll be okay. But again, the night would come, and that's when the fear would come. And the Library of Congress wanted to document our testimony and they had my sister uh, who lives in Germany, my brother Ralph, who's now deceased, and myself sit and have a conversation. And the first question they presented to my brother, and he said, what do you remember growing up during the civil rights movement? And he said, being afraid. Hmm. And I had found a way to push that down, but that's what my brother carried with him. And I suppose my sister was so traumatized by it all, she um, 
She moved away from the United States of America, and she lives in Europe, in Germany, in a foreign country where she feels safer. And my brother is, you know, he's deceased, and I'm here now. I'm the only one that can speak for us, so I have to tell the story. And um, when my father died, Robert Kennedy Jr. came down to my father's funeral and invited me to come to New York to his farm. And later in the year, I did go with my husband. And we were out in the woods with Bobby and, and his hawk. He's a falconer. And he starts telling me what I needed to do. And I said, oh, I'm an actress. And he was like, but you have a responsibility, Donzilla. You have this to do and you have this to do. And I thought, well, nobody cares what I think. I'm just an actress. But once we got inside the house, he showed me a book that he'd written about Lemoyne Billings, who was President John Kennedy's best friend. And I knew Lem. I used to call him. I'd been to his apartment in New York City on Fifth Avenue. And I thought, oh, my God, Bobby has written this book about Lem. I guess I need to write a book then, because that's something that I was always good at writing, and I'm, I'm good at telling stories, and I had all of these historical photographs, our family pictures, and so Bobby inspired me to write the book, and um, it took me a while to literally get it together and find a publisher, but I did do it, and I had Bobby write the forward for the book because he literally inspired me by challenging me to do my part. I'd always given back, but, you know, never in the limelight. I never saw myself in any kind of political limelight because, of course, my dad was there, Uncle Martin was there, my mother was there, Uncle Retta was there. There were all of these people already fighting for the limelight. I never thought that I myself would ever have anything to say. And I'm an artist, but all of a sudden the doors opened and I was presented with a platform and growing up with them, I had something to say and I still have so much to say. Well, we're grateful. Like I said, this could be an entire series. I know your husband has a podcast. You need to do just a series about your life. It would be amazing. <laughs> so listen, I was intrigued by something that you said, which was that you talked about the fight as being a, a moral one. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about, you know, this impeachment hearing that we're coming off of this week and how they talked about the acquittal still being a, a moral justice. And it's interesting to me as I've kind of followed the Twitter political punditry, I've seen a stark difference in the opinions of black women and white women. And one of the women I follow, Brittany Cooper, who's a professor and an author, she put up a tweet that said, to the liberal white people frustrated as the House managers presented an airtight case against a white supremacist insurrection to no avail, I say welcome. This is what it feels like to scream into the wind. Black folks know it well. As you can see, it truly sucks. And it's stayed with me. And I'm wondering if you agree with that or if you stand someplace different. Well, I understand exactly what she means when she says you stand and you scream into the wind to no avail. I actually felt that way and feel that way with the acquittal because I think the acquittal is morally wrong. I believe if someone incites violence, which is what my father and Uncle Martin were repeatedly charged with when violence would break out at one of their marches. They were charged with inciting a riot, mm -hmm. and they were arrested and put in jail when, in fact, they had not incited violence. Instead, all they had asked young people to do was to march and would literally take a knee, and the whole group by the thousands would get on their knees but that did not stop the police. Uh, and so they would charge them with, uh, you know, inciting violence. And so in this case, when a president can literally invite people to Washington, D.C. on a specific date, promise that the event will be wild and ask them to charge the Capitol and to fight, that's inciting an insurrection, uh, the desecration of our Capitol to the thing that we hold the most holy and to violate his oath of office, which is to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution then um, that person deserves to be prosecuted. And there were those senators who chose not to, and they chose to do something that they know is morally incorrect. And so they have to live with the consequences, and history will not favorably remember them. History will record them 
for who they were and what they chose to do. And the thing that they did was put in jeopardy our democracy. That is much greater than their votes. That's much greater than anything. And so, um, you know, there was this poem years ago that uh, at least my mother and my father used to quote, and Uncle Martin quoted it in speeches. It's by a great man named James Russell Lowell. And he wrote, once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide. This is that moment to decide. Americans put their faith and their trust in the Senate, and the Senate decided to not defend the honor, the rights of the American people, but literally voted because of their fear that they would uh, come up against a Trump machine. In that poem, it also says, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold weighs the future behind the dim unknown, standeth God in the shadow, keeping watch over his own. And when James Russell Lowell wrote these words, he's referring to slavery. This isn't slavery, but this is still something that is morally corrupt that is happening right now in our nation. And there's the rise of white supremacy. And so I'm deeply disappointed, and I believe that they're largely influenced by the South Carolina Senator, Lindsey Graham, who on the 6th of January, Lindsey Graham decided that evening after the insurrection, they're getting ready to do the vote. He references 1876 and that uh, three states, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, wanted to end Reconstruction. And ending Reconstruction meant taking away the rights of Black people in the South, the right to vote, the right to have public accommodations, the right to have a civil rights bill. And he said to everybody in the Senate, listen, I know what you all want to do. That's the way he did it in his very thick Southern accent. But this isn't how you do it. Mm-hmm. And he explained to them how Rutherford B. Hayes had done a dirty backdoor deal. And he said, if you all will give me the electoral votes, which is what he needed, I'll kick out the Union Army and then leave the Negroes to be ruled by you all in the South. And that was the dirty deal. And then after that, all of the legislation was taken away. And Lindsey Graham literally presented that and they laughed. The members of the Senate laughed, and he referenced it beginning with, oh, and I love Tim Scott, the black man. <laughs> the, the one black senator in the Republican Party. That's right. And then he began his despicable talk about how to take away rights and votes from people of color. And then the other thing that he did that was so dirty was right after the election, Lindsey Graham telephoned the Secretary of State of Georgia and wanted to know whether or not he had the right to throw out the mail-in ballots. And so now there's a criminal investigation. Yes, Fulton County is going to be investigating that in Georgia right now. And I eagerly await some kind of justice if we didn't get it from the impeachment trial in the Senate. I'm hoping that it will come criminally through the states because I'm with you. I feel like we need more than just a moral victory. I think we need a legal victory as well to move forward. You know, a A lot has changed in the last year. Some good things, a lot of not good things. You know, the Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of George Floyd. The 1619 Project came out, which is amazing. From a lot of bad comes a lot of good. So I I always try to look at the negative things and look at the silver linings, but it can be hard. And I'm wondering from your perspective, like, what do you see as the most frustrating thing right now in terms of the civil rights and racial equity movement in 2021? And what's the most encouraging thing? Well, the most discouraging thing, of course, is what's happening in Washington, because that has a, a ripple effect so that Right after the insurrection happened, I walked outside to walk my little dog in the evening. It was dusk, and three young white boys walked down the street. I've lived here in my neighborhood for 15 years. They were between the ages of 19 to 21, and then they called me the N-word as they approached me and then walked around me, and another uh, uh, of the group referenced the N-word again, and there were three white boys. And so this was on the evening of, I believe it was the 8th of January, and I'm older, and there was still that sting. And that's the ripple effect of what's come from 
the insurrection and from the previous administration. And so that is what's disheartening for me and for all people of color, because we are being victimized. I have watched Asian people who are being hit and attacked on the streets because they are blamed for the coronavirus. So there are attacks that are literally happening against people of color and white men are feeling that they are threatened. I'm married to a white man who says to me, are you kidding me? How can white men feel threatened and think they are an endangered species when we get nine out of 10 jobs? We have the most money. We have the most power. We have the most everything. How can we possibly feel threatened when black people, Latino people, and Asian people basically are asking for one-tenth? And so my husband laughs about it, and he's like, this is the saddest commentary on white men. How can they feel so threatened? How can they feel so insecure? I mean, that, that really is alarming to me, and this is all what's happening in Washington, because the Republican Senate has proven that they're not going to do anything that's morally and ethically right, and so they're going to fight for the courts, they're going to give our new president a hard time, they're gerrymandering, and they're trying to do voter suppression. So without that power, that is really threatening. And then they will have influence in education, and if you don't educate the masses, Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? They don't want women to have rights or education, white women. And then they can squish that white woman and control that white woman. And then you can control those children. And then you dumb down the masses. And when you dumb down the masses, you have people that act like lemmings. So that's what really worries me. And for us who are people of color that are black, there's that glass ceiling that we have and we fight and we fight and we fight against it. And thankfully, my dad and Uncle Martin were able to knock that wall down. But they have since been able to, after Barack Obama, they worked so diligently to try and stack bricks again and to make it impossible for us to rise. So I worry. I literally worry. But I do feel empowered because there's the Black Lives Matter movement, which is not just black people. It is young white people. It is Latino people. It is Asian people. They are young and they're old and they're men and they're women and they're children. And they are doing what is morally and ethically right, which is saying that black lives matter because we know that white lives matter. We know that blue lives matter. All we're asking is that black lives matter too. And that's great because they cannot unsee that which is right. You cannot put blinders on them and tell them, oh, it's wrong for you to think that brown people deserve a part of the American dream. And so that's where we are right now. So, I mean, I feel inspired. I'm glad you mentioned being able to see. I always talk about it as being like, do you remember those magic eye books in the 90s where there were all the dots? And if you looked at it a certain way and kind of squinted your eyes, suddenly you'd be able to see a picture appear. Right. And you'd wait so hard and you'd try and you'd try and you wouldn't see anything. It was just dots. And then one day you went, oh, it's a turtle or whatever it is. Once you could see it, you can't unsee it. Right. And I think about that all the time, that once something clicks for white people like me about, oh, this is how it gets traced back to slavery and reparations and Jim Crow and Reconstruction. This is how you can describe your experience. And it doesn't seem like it's a random thing with three young white guys coming up to you on the street to harass you. Like once you really see it, you can't unsee it. And then you have to do something about it. Right. And for me, at least, that's what's encouraging is I'm seeing a lot of white people kind of trying to listen and hear things in a new way that they haven't before. And so I I'm glad to also hear you talk about education. And I was really disturbed by the Trump administration trying to get the 1619 Project out of schools, which is insane. You know, heaven forbid we don't learn real history. <laughs> we only learn from one side. The, the horrible thing is that they tried to say that, um, and he did say, diversity training is racist. Yes. And so people who put on Martin Luther King Day events or Black History Month events or events where they would have diversity training, whether they're working for the federal government or they're in corporate America or they're in universities and educational settings, 
all of these people suddenly were unable to work. And I received telephone call after telephone call. And I had engagements myself where I was told that, I'm sorry, it, it can't happen because we've been canceled because they're trying to say that diversity training is racist. And that's absolutely a blatant lie. Diversity training isn't racist. What it does is it teaches you to try and understand what somebody of a different race is going through. I remember when I was a little girl, there was a project where the teacher did brown eyes and blue eyes. And she separated the children based on the color of their eyes because they were all white children. And so she told all of the blue-eyed children, basically, that you all are in the back and all of the brown-eyed children were in the front. Well, you know, historically, you know, people have tried to say, well, the blue eyes are the more beautiful eyes than the brown-eyed children. Well, the blue-eyed children went into a panic. Their eyes were open and they were able to see and understand what it felt like to be discriminated against based upon color. And then she did the reverse with brown-eyed children. There's a little film that they made about it, but I remember hearing about it as a little child and seeing it and thinking, oh my goodness, now someone can understand what it is like. Yeah, there is a really compelling chapter about that in Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, which I've talked about on the podcast a few episodes back, that really brings it to light. It's excellent, and I, I really feel like all parents need to read that book as a place to start. Speaking of education and parents, I love that you've worked with teachers to help them learn how to better teach African-American history and civil rights history. And actually, my mom is an educational consultant who works with teachers on diversity in the classroom. She focuses a little more on gender issues, mm -hmm. but I, I'm always so grateful to teachers who teach teachers because I know teachers can be a tough audience of students. And I'm wondering, you know, what are a few takeaways for parents from the things you teach, especially non-Black parents like me, on how how we can talk to our kids at home about these topics and how we can further their education and understanding of what's happening in America in terms of civil rights and racial justice. Well, I work now with the National Association of Multicultural Educators. This is a huge group all across America and outside of the United States, and they're interested in teaching multicultural education. So when I talk to these teachers, I literally listen to them. And the one thing that I have learned from all of them is that the children come to them with earnest questions about race. And the most important thing you need to do is to listen to the children and to give them that platform to express themselves because they come with questions and therefore you need to answer them honestly. And I learned from my dad and Uncle Martin that there is a socialization process that people go through, whether it is a school or through a church or in a neighborhood. And what we do through that socialization process is we teach our children to be with people that look like us. So we'll say to our child, oh, don't play with that child because that child is different from us. And the child will immediately say, but why? And you'll say, well, you know, they don't go to the same church. They don't practice the same religion. They're of a different race. They're of a different ethnicity. They're Italian. We are English or we're French or they're Yugoslavian or they're Russian or they're black or they're Latina. But parents make that difference through the socialization process. And the other thing we have to be mindful of, the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when people go to church with people that look like them in a community of people that are like them. And the Catholic Church used to have just one basic mass. And then people were so angry that the mass was so diverse that they said to the priests, no, we need to have a Latino mask in Spanish. We need to have a white mask. We need to have an Asian mask. And so now at the Catholic Church here in Los Angeles, you have all of these different masses so that the people go to church with people that look like them, that belong in families. And that's a problem because we all worship the same God, do we not? The creator, we don't know what God looks like. And to think that we're different or we're better than another because of the way we worship, that's the biggest lie ever told. Or to think that we're smarter than another based on the color of our skin. That's another lie that's told. It's perpetuated. But these children understand it immediately. And I learned this in the elementary school at Spring Street Elementary School. When I was in the third grade, one of my dearest friends was a girl named Andrea Berta. And her parents had come from Europe, from Yugoslavia, I believe. And her mother saw Andrea and I sitting together when her mother picked her up from school one day. And Andrea came back to school and she said, listen... 
my mother doesn't want us to be friends. So from now on, we'll be friends during the school day. But at the end of the school day, you need to go sit on the other side and we cannot talk to each other so that my mother cannot know that we're friends. And her mother was teaching her how not to be kind to me. The little boy, Wesley Wright, who used to call me the N-word every single day in school, his parents were older. He was a frustrated boy. His parents were using the N-word. And so Wesley came to school and acted out and used the N-word. We teach our children how to discriminate, and it begins at home. And John Kennedy in 1963 delivered an absolutely wonderful speech that I think every parent needs to listen to and listen to it with their children. And he talks about what a person must feel to have been a person of color and to have finally gotten your freedom after 244 years of slavery and then to experience 100 years of Jim Crow and then still be denied the right to be a recognized human being and to have a civil rights bill. And then we're talking about 344 years. Put yourself in that black person's situation. And then he said, we have a race problem in America, and it begins with each and every one of us. And we need to sit down at our homes with our family, with our children, and to discuss this. And when he did that, President Kennedy was throwing the problem back to every household in America, to every single mother and father and to their children. And he was absolutely right, because that's where it begins, at home, at the dinner table, when that family comes together to teach your children not to discriminate. And my dad used to say, we hate each other because we fear each other. We fear each other because we don't know each other. We don't know each other because we won't sit down at the table together. Let's sit down at the table together. And that's the thing, what people do. They want to sit at the table with people that are like them. And if someone's different, they push that person away. You're not a part of our clique. You're not a part of our group. And that's when you need to say, oh, no, you're different. Come sit at the table. Let me learn from you. And I'll tell you about me. And you can learn from me. And let's find the commonality, and we'll find out ultimately that we have more in common than we have differences, because we all basically want the same thing in life. And, and I think actually one of the great things about social media is it allows us to have this virtual table so that even if we're not in communities with people who are very different from us, we can easily go online and find people. And you can look at your Instagram feed or your Twitter follows or your Facebook friends and go, wow, a awful lot of these people look just like me. And that's a good opportunity to seek out other voices and Listen. Yeah, but my husband has made one thing very clear to me. Mm -hmm. He has some friends who tell their friends, you know, we use Facebook more than the other mediums because we're older. <laughs> but with our friends with Facebook, my husband's friends will say, this is what I feel. What do you all feel? And if they answer the question and have a different opinion, they will jump all on you. Mm -hmm. And then the people back down and he's like, it's so disappointing because they want to be courageous and they want to speak out, but it's so hard after they're publicly being attacked, mm -hmm. which is a part of that process of people trying to tell people how to think. And it's so disappointing. But I'm grateful that I have a bunch of extremely liberal friends, liberal black friends and liberal white friends. And we welcome everything and, and everyone. And I have some friends who actually like that outgoing president in, in that administration, but they're my friends. And I remind them that I love them and I remind them how I met them. And I know that they ultimately deep in their hearts love me. But then when they get together with some of their friends, another, uh, actually, this is my friend, Joel, you know, he's silent about it. Or my friend Bradley, who's now living in Indiana and doesn't want people to know that, you know, I was his lifeline when he lived here in Los Angeles. You know, we saw each other regularly at work and socially. But now that he's back in his a little insular group in Indiana, he won't say anything. And I'm like, oh, poor Bradley, poor Bradley. You know, it's just very interesting. Uh, social media is good. It's not wide enough. And uh, I don't know what we're going to do, but I know that the young people will invent something. That's the thing that I like about TikTok, mm. because you see the kids and you hear them and they're open 
and they're honest. Granted, they have a lot of things where they, you know, they play, but you see them and they seem to be really honest on TikTok and they're not like a group think. I mean, my faith is in these kids. I mean, they are brilliant. And if they're left to their own means, because, you know, because of social media, they think quicker. They're doing things so much faster than people did in my generation and the generation prior to. They're the future. They want common sense gun control legislation. They're the ones that are, and it's incredible to hear them because they have to do fire drills in case there's an active shooter in the classroom. And they've got parents who are talking about stockpiling weapons at home who don't understand because they haven't been in a classroom where there was an active shooter or had that amount of fear. And it's incredible to see these young white kids come to me and talk to me about how heartbreaking it is to be afraid that a shooter might come and kill them. And their parents have no understanding of it at all, at all, or climate change and how it's going to affect them and what the world's going to be like when they grow up and or what kind of world are these kids going to present to their children because they're thinking about it, but their parents aren't. The parents aren't. Yeah, I have a 13 and a 15-year-old daughter, and they're definitely on TikTok. And, you know, we always say that one of the best things parents can do is just create open communication lines with your kids, especially with social media, because they will come to me and say, I saw this thing. This is really bad. How do I respond to this? Or I saw this racist joke, and I don't like this, and how should I handle this? Or, you know, Mom, you used this word, which I know was okay for your generation, but now it's not okay, and I just want to point that out, and here's this thing I found. And my God, we learn so much listening to our kids if we're open to it. That's right. You have to be open to it. Because if you're not, you're going to alienate them and you're going to create a wall between you. And the last thing you want is a wall between you and your children. You want to always have those open lines of communication. I'm so grateful that my parents had an open line of communication with me and that I thought I could say any and everything to them. And they didn't chastise me. They didn't punish me. They said, let me know what's going on with you. And I always did. My sister always did. And my brothers always did. I think it makes for a healthier environment and a much more loving environment. And no matter what, you got to let them know that at the end of the day, I love you. And I love that when I used to come home from school every single day, I had to give my mother a hug and a kiss. And before I went to bed every single night, my mother gave me a hug and a kiss. And if my father was home, he gave me a hug and a kiss. That's the way we were raised. And there was that love between us. And whatever happened, I was going to come to my parents and take my troubles to them because they weren't going to judge me. They were always going to be there open to receive me. Mm. And I know that that happens a lot in the black community. With my husband's world and his world, a white family, it's entirely different. I grew up in a nonviolent household because the world outside our home was violent. Mm -hmm. There was the threat of violence. And so my father and mother did not yell at us and they didn't yell at each other. My mother might raise her voice, but my dad never did. He wanted our home to be a peaceful haven. So our home was incredibly peaceful growing up. I felt great and safe once I was in the walls of my home and I knew that whatever I did, it was okay. But I'm seeing a difference in my husband's parents, the home that they had created, where the father rules, whereas in my home, the mother ruled. Hmm. It's a vast difference. And what the white male does, and in the black family, it's the black female who rules. And it's uh, incredibly different. And the black female always pushes her daughter as well as her son. Whereas in the white family, more often than not, that male is pushed ahead of that female. And that's really disappointing to see and for me to hear it because I knew growing up there was an equal playing field. And I know that I was taught that the world would differentiate. But as long as we were at home, my brother had the same task that we had and everything was shared. I mean, these are just, you know, cultural differences that I've learned. But please, more than anything, connect with your children and let them know that they're okay the way they are and how they feel. Go with them. They will guide you. They will tell you who they want to be and how they want to be in the world. I knew that I was an artist as a little girl. And when I stopped nurturing my art, my father came to me and he said, you told me you were going to be an artist. Now, what are you doing for your art? Hmm. 
And I was like, oh, Daddy, I've given that up. He's like, you can't give that up. Absolutely not. And he wanted me to make sure that I went to a college where I nurtured my art. And then he was like, to thine own self be true. And it shall follow as the night, the day, thou canst not be false to any man. And I was true to myself. I'm true to myself now. And, and by being true to myself and being the artist that I am, I'm much more successful than if I had taken a job in corporate America or become a lawyer or a business person. I'm much more successful and I'm a much happier person. And my husband's like, you're always happy. I am. I'm a happy person. It doesn't matter, you know, that those kids called me the N-word. I mean, it, it, it's disappointing. It stings. I come back inside. I express it to my husband, the disappointment. And I don't get angry because underneath anger is hurt. I learned that from my parents. So I immediately throw away the anger and deal with the hurt that I feel inside. And I express the hurt. And then it's okay. It's par for the course for people of color like me. I wish the world was fair that way, but it isn't. But we live through it, and every day it gets a little bit better. You know, based on the relationship you had with your parents and the way you're speaking about kids and TikTok, it sounds like you find a lot of encouragement in the next generation to maybe do a little better so that we incrementally get better and better each year. They're more than a little. They're going to do a lot better. <laughs> they took to the streets across America. And, and, you know, I marched too. And my husband marched as well. When we were marching at first, we thought we were the only older people there. And then we saw others. But it was wonderful to be out there with these young people. And not one single racial group dominated, at least here in California. And it was inspiring. And they were out there every single day. And all they're asking for is social justice and equality. And a fairer world. Can you blame them? And this is the other thing that, that came out of the insurrection that happened on the 6th. If those people had been black, do you know those police officers would have been in mass oh, yeah. on the steps of the Capitol and around Washington? And they would have immediately taken out their guns and shot and killed someone? But that didn't happen because those people were white. And then they desecrated our nation's capital. Desecrated it. And you cannot say that that was equality. That was a clear-cut case of inequality and white privilege. And it was horrible what white privilege achieved on the 6th of January. Threatened our democracy and made a, a mockery of America to the entire world. One of the things that shocked me most that I don't think we talk about enough is that they were allowed to just walk out of the Capitol at the end of the day. Oh, right. I could not believe there weren't mass arrests and people being shepherded into buses. They just walked out and went back to their hotels or went home. They went to their hotels. And then my husband showed me video footage of them in the lobby of the hotel mm -hmm. as they're being served and they still have on the garb that they had had on all day long. And people were serving them in these hotels in Washington, D.C., when the hotel should have said, we reserve the right to refuse service and get out. That's what they should have done. And that's what they would have done to black people. That's what they would have done to Latino people. That's what they would have done to Asian people. They would have done to Native American people. If this had been all women, that's what they would have done to those women. I'm with you. And your husband and I watch the same videos, clearly. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the listening the video you just made because it's extraordinary. And I've watched it several times already. There's a video to go with the song and I, I see something new each time and it's really special. I want to know from you how it came about and what you want us to take away from it. But first, let me just explain briefly. It's based on Dr. King's speech in 1967 about the Vietnam War. They went to a composer who's turned it into this incredible symphony of choral voices. And it's uplifting and it's special and it's empowering. And it really is like a combination of spoken word and gospel and choral singing. It's wonderful. And I'm just hoping you could tell us a little more about it, how it came about and um, how you got involved with it. Oh, my goodness. I got involved with it because my husband had communicated with Cheryl Inglehart via the Internet. And as a songwriter, she had told my husband about the song, the listening that she had written. And then she told him that it was going to be performed in San Diego. And he said, well, I'd like to come down and hear it and bring my wife. And he told her who I am. 
So he says, can we have like a date night? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm always game for a date night with my husband. So we, we drove down, had an early dinner with friends, and then we went to the college campus. And it was great because it was an audience of college students. And Cheryl's students got on stage and they started to sing. And it was absolutely riveting, the choral selection and the music was beautiful. Oh my goodness, I was so blown away by the whole thing. And then afterwards, I was like, well, let's go out with Cheryl. And my husband had to come back to Los Angeles it's just a three-hour drive, so we couldn't meet with Cheryl later, so now I was like, okay, fine. I was really disappointed. So we got back home, and it just sort of like sat with me, but Dar found out that Cheryl was going to be doing another recording, and he recorded me singing Fly Me to the Moon, and then once he was sure that she was going to be doing the recording, he's like, you need to hear my wife sing, and so Cheryl got on a video call with me and asked me, would I do it? And I was like, oh, no, 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 you need my sister. She's an opera singer. She's in Germany. She conducts a choir you know she's got this powerful voice and Cheryl's like okay but listen this is the song I'm going to sing you the recording you can look at it and then you can sing for me and so I was like oh my god and all I could hear was my brother's voice who's now deceased you know he was dying at that point he said you know you have a beautiful voice at some point I want you to start singing again like you used to sing with the groups and put your voice out there and all I could do was my brother's voice so when Cheryl sent me the music I decided to sing it on FaceTime with her she was like oh Dondre this is great and I was like oh my god this is really going to happen. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. I studied and studied and studied, and uh, she said, put it to your own place, and, you know, how it seemed the way you felt you wanted to do it. We recorded it, and, and I kept saying, let's do it over and over and over and over, and she was like, we've already got it. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm a perfectionist. I really am. <laughs> I'm sort of obsessive compulsive. Uh, I always overdo everything. And thankfully, I overdid it, and one of the last takes that I was pleased with when I threw caution to the wind, that's what Cheryl ended up going with. Oh, my God, it was just so magical. And all the people, the young, the old people, the black and the white, everybody coming together. And it's silence, silence. There was a new spirit rising. And it was all coming during the pandemic. And it was all happening during the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And so the spirit of everything was around it. And I think it was affecting all of us, all of the singers. And so she recorded everybody separately, but she put it together like a Zoom presentation, which is really interesting, which speaks to where we are today because everything is happening via Zoom. But we weren't recorded that way. She made it to look like that. I mean, a lot of other people would have made it a different kind of a video. It's beautiful. It's simple. It's authentic. Everybody's in their own space. I mean, it's just this incredible choral piece where... You know, each person's singing a different part and it comes together. I mean, it's like a lot of video pieces we've seen over the past year, but it's just so special and uplifting. And the repeated chorus that there's a new spirit rising out of Dr. King's speech, yeah. it just felt so timely and topical. Like it could have been written today and not 50 some odd years ago. Absolutely. So it's, a, it's a really special piece. And we'll link it up on Cool Mom Picks on our podcast page. You can find it at cbemusic.co slash listening. It's called The Listening. You can also just look it up. It stars Donzele Abernathy and actually some other Black Lives Matter activists. It's just, it's it's wonderful. And, you know, for parents who want to have a discussion with kids, that's a good place to start. Watch this short video together and talk about it and talk about the original speech and compare what's happening today with what Dr. King was speaking about, about peace and activism and justice in 1967. It's really very special. Wow, thank you. I really think it is too. I'm so truly honored that Cheryl did this and that she asked me to be a part of it. Well, it's beautiful. Again, it's at cbemusic.co, C-O, slash listening, and it's outstanding. So, Donzele, where is the best place for anyone to find you? Are you on social media? Like, if people want to learn more about what you're doing these days? Well, there's the Internet Movie Database, imdb.com. Oh, yeah. Just type in my name, Donzele, D-O-N-Z-A-L-E-I-G-H, Abernathy, A-B-E-R-N-A-T-H-Y, my acting work, all of that will come up, everything that I've done. Primarily, I'm an actress, so that's there. And then I'm on Instagram. My young friends, because I have so many young friends, <laughs> they've convinced me to go get on Instagram. So I'm on Instagram. I didn't do Twitter. And I have a Facebook page. I try to keep that nice and small. But Facebook created some other Facebook page for me. They pick up some of the things that I post with my friends, and then they put it on the Facebook's public page for me. 
it. I don't know how they did it, but they did that. Which oh, is, uh, social really media. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're on Instagram. That's a, a lot of our listeners are there, and I'm sure that's like, the best place to find you. Instagram. Well, I'm so grateful that you gave us so much time and so much insight and so much of your life. I just wish you so much luck in everything else you're doing. But you're going to stick around for Cool Picks of the Week, yeah? Yes. Excellent. Okay, so since you're our guest and it's time for Cool Picks of the Week, Cool Picks of the Week, you get to go first, Donzele. So, my cool pick of the week is that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are expecting a new child. Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited about that. And um, I worked with Meghan Markle on Suits. We did two episodes together. And she was absolutely lovely. And we went to makeup and hair together. And, and she just sat with me as I was getting my hair done. And then I sat with her while she got her makeup and her hair done, and we talked. And she's absolutely lovely. And so we spent three weeks together. And my friends just texted me this morning as I was waiting for your call to let me know that she has delivered 10 babies between Thursday to this morning. And I said, those are coronavirus babies. And she said, you're absolutely <laughs> right. So the birth rate has gone up. And so the mothers are busy. Yeah, that's my pick of the week. I'm so Megan excited. Markle, I, love I love it. it. All these babies. I think we're all looking for something happy to look forward to these days, you know. And so like we're like, yay, births. We just came out actually with the baby shower gift guide. And people are so excited about it because they just want to shower those babies these days. <laughs> we're just looking for happy things to celebrate. Mm -hmm. And babies are the most beautiful. You know, now that we're in the coronavirus and we're forced to be home all the time, I have to say I'm really grateful for the time that I have this one-on-one -on -one with my husband and the romance. You know, you fall in love all over again. Aww. It's so sweet. I'm doing my exercise and he saw me. He was coming back from doing his exercise. So he walked down the street to meet me. And then I just started running to him with my arms open. And he ran to me with his arms open. And then we just stopped and hugged and kissed each other on the street. Like we were, I don't know, 19, 20, 21. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the coronavirus has done that for us and brought us together that way. And I uh, love that. Well, you know, Michael Pick actually could help you out with some of that. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael Pick, this week, are you familiar with Harlem Candle Company? No. It is this incredible woman-run small business. I found them at like a Christmas fair in Grand Central Station in New York a couple years back. They had a stall in a Christmas gift market and I loved the scent so much and I love their story that I bought a few samples and now I'm addicted. They're the most incredible candles. Oh, wow. And I'm very I've become like that crazy scented candle person over the pandemic. Like I just want my space to be like nice and calming. They have this whole collection. It's like a Harlem Renaissance collection. Like my daughter favorite is called Langston and it smells kind of like tobacco and amber. It's kind of a smoky smell. But my favorite, it's called Sugar Hill and it's a citrusy candle. Mm. That is, it's exquisite. It's like you can never go back to a cheap candle ever again. It's really good. I mean, everything I've tried from them is amazing, but this Sugar Hill candle, I just went through the whole thing and it's a big candle and I'm ready to go back and get another. So that's my pick is Harlem Candle Co. I love supporting small businesses anyway, but this is a good one. You need to get these as gifts for your friends. They're phenomenal. I do. I need to get a gift for myself and for my husband. Yeah. We love candles. We burn candles every day. I love that. We love candles. Well, I will tell you the the Langston scent. It's a good evening scent. Wink, wink. That's all I'll say about it. Oh, that. wow. <laughs> I will get them. Thank you. Of course. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. That was pretty amazing. Huge thanks to our guest, Don Zelay Abernathy, and to our engineer, John Bowen. And hey, if you've got a moment and can leave us a five-star review, we'd greatly appreciate your time. And hey, by doing that, and also by subscribing to Spawned and downloading our episodes, it helps other listeners like you find us and really helps support our show. You can also join us in our Spawned podcast community on Facebook, where we chat about the show topics and pretty much anything else. But I think we're going to have a lot to say about this one. So hey, thank you so much for listening to Spawned. This is Liz. Kristen will be back next week. Have a great day. Bye.